Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22. Today we will be sharing the Lord's table together. And as we have done for a period of time now, I've shared with you last year that I had decided at least for a period of time, not forever, but to get out of the normal pattern that we've had. We've had a normal pattern of receiving the Lord's table on the last Sunday of the month, but my sense was, at least for me, and perhaps for some of you, maybe most of us, it had become routine. And it becomes so routine that we were kind of squeezing in at the end of the service, and it's a kind of a thing we have to do. And as we opened the scriptures and began to look at them, we realized that the attitude that we bring together in sharing the Lord's table is absolutely critical. In fact, verses we'll probably read later on in 1 Corinthians 11, it says in Paul's days, Paul's correcting the church at Corinth, he says, because the attitude that you have towards the Lord's table, because of that, some of you have died. And many of you are sick and weakly. So what we discovered is there's significance to, to the attitude that we have towards this. And one of the attitudes that we cannot have is just to take it for granted. And so what we're doing is in order to stop taking it for granted, we're not going to do it at a predictable place. But we've, I've, I've scheduled it. I'm not just telling you. And, and, and it'll sneak up on me sometimes. And we're doing it this way so that we can take the entire service and dedicate the service towards preparing to receive the Lord's table together so that we can have an understanding of what it is we're doing and why we're doing what it is. And some of what we're going to go over this morning for those of you that have been around, that have been in, that been, in, uh, been a Christian for years, it, it will in many ways just be a review, but there are some things that are important to review. Peter wrote in his last epistle to the saints, he said, I'm putting you in remembrance of things you already know. Why? Because I don't know about you, but I forget things from time to time. Things I may have known before I lose sight of, even if I didn't forget it, and then I'll just kind of drift back into the old patterns. So there's some things we just need to be reminded of, and we may actually learn some new things today. So we're going to look at the Lord's table today, and we're going to look at the background of the Lord's table. But before we do that, we're going to look at the scriptures where that teach us what Jesus actually said to his disciples. And so in Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read just a couple of scriptures, and then we're going to stop... So don't peek ahead, and then we're going to go back and look at the, because then we're going to look at what he's talking about here. Luke chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 7. Then on the day, then the day, then came the day of unleavened bread, which was what we're going to now look at today, when the Passover must be killed or sacrificed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. And they said to him, what, where do you want us to prepare this? And he said to them, Behold, when you have come, entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room and there make ready. So they went and found just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, and this is what I wanted to look at, with fervent, passionate desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
every year of his life, ever since he was 12 years old, every year of each of the apostles' life, ever since they were 12 years old, they have eaten a meal that we're going to look at this morning called the Passover meal at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Every year they've done this. And, and as they've done it every year, there's a, it's, it's ingrained in them what to say and what to do, what not to say and what not to do. But this particular Passover, there's something different about it. There's something significant about it because notice Jesus says, I have fervently desired to share this particular Passover with you. So there must be something about this particular Passover meal that he was to share with them that was going to be different than the one he had done the year before and the year before that. This was probably the third, perhaps the fourth time that they had shared this meal together. And they had shared it every year of their life except since they were... 12 years old, but there's something about this particular one that they were going to share that was different enough that Jesus said, I have longed and fervently desired for this one. And then he goes on to say to them, and after this time, I will not share it with you again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So there's something about this Passover that is foretelling something. There's something about the Passover that is preparing. There's something about the Passover that is to be fulfilled because if the meal was, the, was in itself what it was all about, then there's nothing else to be fulfilled. Because if something is still to be fulfilled, then what this is isn't filling yet. It's kind of like the appetizer isn't the meal. It shouldn't fill you up. Years ago, my wife and I were invited, this was before Christians, to a good friend's house and on a Friday night, and we went over there and sat down, and we thought we were invited for dinner. And they served crackers with a little piece of cheese on it, and they went around again and served another cracker with a little piece of cheese, and I'm kind of go, trying to smell the food, and I don't smell anything, and I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me, and I'm looking to see it, and it finally dawned on me, this was supper, so we had as many as we could get. And the point is, the hors d'oeuvre didn't fulfill our expectation. It didn't fill us. It didn't satisfy us. Because all the purpose of an hors d'oeuvre is, is to whet your appetite and prepare you for what is coming, which will satisfy you and will fill you. And so what Jesus is saying is that what has gone on before is an appetizer. It's been an hors d'oeuvre. See, what an appetizer is, it gives you a taste of what's to come, but it's not the whole thing. It gets in your senses to get your senses stirred up to anticipate and be prepared to receive what is to come, but it's not the meal. And for all these generations, after generations, after generations, there was an exercise that they went through which was an hors d'oeuvre. It was to prepare them, to train them, to whet their appetite and say, why would God have to do that for all those years? Because we're dumb and stupid and ignorant. Those are kind of direct words, but that's where we are when it comes to the things of God. They had to rehearse it over and 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 over again, and still then most of them didn't get it. I've had some people write letters, why do you, why do you talk about the same thing over and over again? Because you don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. And if I've gotten it, I don't mind tasting it again because it's good. 
In fact, I'll give you this little secret. If you hear the Word of God preached and you say, well, I don't need to listen to that because I've heard it before, that means you haven't heard it yet. You've heard it with your mind but not your heart. I never tire of hearing of the good news of what God's done for me in my heart. My wife has never told me, I'm tired of you telling me you love me. Unless she senses I'm doing it for some other reason. But when I sincerely tell her I love you, you're beautiful to me, you're precious to me, I've never heard her say, look, I've heard that before, don't bother me with that stuff. Why? Because it touches something in her heart because it's coming from my heart. And so when something that's from the heart of God that you know and you've heard before touches your heart again, instead of saying, oh, I've heard that before, it's like, oh, it's so good to hear that again. It stirs it up in me again. Why? That's a sign you've begun to hear it. But if you have this attitude, oh, I've heard that before, that means you haven't. Because Jesus said, my words are life. They're spirit and they're life. And every time I hear the Word of God, every time I read the Word of God, it's life to me, it breathes, it animates me, it makes me alive again. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to look this morning at the original Passover. And then we're going to come back and see why the one that Jesus instituted with them was different. Why, what it changed. I'm going to read through this. I'm going to actually start in verse 11, chapter 11. I'm going to read through it, and then I'm going to go through and give you some basic... I'm going to highlight the elements and then talk about what they were intended to prepare them for, and then we'll look at what it did prepare them for. I'm going to read quickly through chapter 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more play. The children of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. They're in bondage, which means they don't decide what they eat. They don't decide what they do. They are required to work, and they don't get paid for it. They are required to work by slave masters, taskmasters. And in fact, they have to go, the, 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 the crops that they ate, they had to go and walk to the water to, to water. There was no irrigation. And, and, and then they're still required to pay for, to, to do the work, to build the cities of Pharaoh and the, and the pyramids of Pharaoh. And they work, they have no rights they're, they're, they have to provide their own food. They have to provide, eventually, their own straw to make the bricks. And this bondage gets so hard after 430 years that they eventually cry out to God. And we're not going to take the time to go back, but God has already prepared an answer, a deliverer for them, 80 years in the preparation by the time they cry out for him. And that's Moses. And God sends Moses and, of course, his brother Aaron with him to deliver the children of Israel in response to their cry out of Egypt, out of the place of bondage. So in what we're looking at this morning, Egypt represents the world. It represents the systems of the world, the values of the world. It represents the power of the world. And it was under the rulership and under the absolute authority of, of, a, of, a man, of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh meant God. And they gave the same title Pharaoh to every man because they, wanted the, they believed that this man was a god even though they actually died. That's why they had their tombs. And the tombs are still filled today. Whereas the tomb of our God is empty. Because he was raised from the dead. Why? Because he's the true and the living God. Amen. But the God that they claimed to be God wasn't God at all. And he represents Satan because Satan is the God of this world. And he thinks he's God. He tries to act as God. And he has an authority on this earth at this time because the original man gave it to him. 
And so when we look at the story of Egypt, we rep- it represents the world. It represents the systems of the world, the value of the world. And Pharaoh represents the power of the world. And we're not going to spend much time looking at that. We're going to look at their process of being delivered. Because Moses comes back and God, God, in order to convince Pharaoh that he had to let them go. See, this was really a battle between God and Pharaoh. This was about that God was going to establish to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and to the Israelites who really was the supreme power, who really was the supreme authority. And we're not going to go through all these, but up to this point that we're picking up right now, there have been nine plagues that have come against the Egyptians. Through most of them, the early ones it wasn't true, but through all the latter ones, the Israelites were spared it. So where there was darkness in all of Egypt, there was light in, the, in Goshen where the, where, the, where the Israelites lived. Some of the plagues that came on, Israel, on Egypt didn't come on the Israelites. And that's our background. Now God's speaking to Moses about what the last thing he's going to do. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh in Egypt, and afterwards he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. Those are going to be used to build the tabernacle. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, And all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, to the firstborn of the animals. Then there will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as not been like it before, and shall not be like it again. And against none of the children of Israel shall even a dog move its tongue against man or beast. In order that you may know, in order that you may know, that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, says, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow after you, and I will go out. And the, they went out before Pharaoh in great anger. He was in great anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be manifested in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of go out of his hand. Notice verse 7 where it says, I'm going to do all this so that you may know that there's a difference between you and the Egyptians. There's things God wants to do in our lives so that we may know there's a difference between his children and the world. Now chapter 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. In other words, this will be the, from now on, this will be the first of your calendar year. And it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father. The lamb for a household. So each household shall have one lamb. And the household, if the household is too small for the lamb, let him come together with his neighbor in the next house according to the number. In other words, we'll combine houses together if they're too small to have their own lamb. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. It shall be a male of the first year. It shall be a yearling. And you shall take it from among the sheep or from the goats, and you, it, you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So each, each family was to take a, a male goat, one year of age, 
it was to be without blemish. They were to select it on the first of the month and they were to keep it separate for 14 days, two weeks. During that time, they were to watch it to make sure that it was perfect, to watch it to make sure that there was no blemish, that it didn't have some limp or some habit that made it blemished. And then at the end of the 14 days, they were all to kill it at the same time, which is at twilight, the whole nation of Israel. Verse 7, Then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat. So you should do it on the side doorpost, on the lentil, which is the top. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread, and bitter herbs they shall eat it. And you shall not eat it raw, nor shall you boil it in water. It shall be roasted in fire, its head, its legs, and its entrails, and you shall not let any of it remain until morning. What remains of it, in other words, what you cannot eat until morning, you shall burn with fire." Thus shall you shall eat it, with your belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. See, they worship gods. They worship they worship man-made gods. They worship gods that were, had heads of goats and bodies of men. They worshiped all kinds of gods and made images of them. And all of them did. None of them were guiltless. And so God is saying, I am going to judge the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. From Pharaoh down to the last servant, every firstborn of every animal, I'm going to strike the firstborn. Why? Because I'm destroying the executing judgment on the gods that they've worshipped. Be careful who you worship because your destiny may be tied to who you worship. Be aware, and that's what we've been studying, worship. Who you're worshipping with your life, not just in church, because your destiny may well be tied to who you worship. Verse 13, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now the word Passover is an interesting word. We just kind of assume it means it's going to pass over. I look this word up. It means to, it means to purchase, it means to purchase a pardon or, or an exemption from something. It was often used in, in, in other lands, this term, because the term comes from an Assyrian term, which meant basically to pay in order to not be punished. So you pay a price so that you don't get punished. And so that's what the Passover means. There's a payment that's made for your punishment. And for all of Egypt, their firstborn was going to pay a price for the, a punishment, a judgment for all the sin of all of Egypt. Their firstborn was going to pay the price for all of them from Pharaoh down through the lowliest of all the animals. But God's saying the blood of that lamb that I have had you sacrificed, when it's, I find that on the doorposts of your houses, 
I will look at it and say, oh, that price has already been paid here. I can pass over and not execute my judgment to anyone, anyone that's within that household. You're with me so far? All right. Now let's go on to the next verse. Because that's what they're to do that night. Verse 14. So this day then, from here on, this particular day of the year, shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove all leaven from your houses. Now leaven is yeast. Leaven is yeast, and we'll explain to you what the significance of that is in a minute. Whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Not just made to sit outside the house. You're cut off outside the nation and the family and the covenant of Israel. This was serious. It was not, see, this was not just some ritual that, oh, well, if I don't take it seriously and I make a mistake, it's all right. If you fail all your life, you've done this correctly, but in this year you've, you've left a piece of leavened bread, a loaf of bread tucked somewhere back in a cabinet, you are now removed from Israel. You are kicked out of the family and the body and the covenant of Israel. Serious stuff. And you'll see why in a minute. That'll make you clean your cupboards carefully, won't that? Verse 16. On the first day there shall be for you a holy convocation, meeting, assembly, And on the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation for you. And no manner of work shall be done on the first day or the latter day, but it shall be everyone must eat and only what may be prepared for you. And you shall serve the feast of unleavened bread on this same day that I brought you on your hosts or armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting covenant. And in the first month, On the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the first day, the twenty-first day of the month, at evening. And he goes through again and, and repeats all of this. What this is, is a ritual that God is taking them through to train Israel and prepare Israel for something. So let's talk about what these elements, very specific instructions are, and what this, they mean, what they mean from a spiritual perspective. The first thing we're going to look at, of course, is that this is done at the first month of the year. And this is event is established as the opening or the beginning of something. They were to take one lamb for each household, and it must be without blemish. And it must be one year old, And they were to keep the lambs for 14 days as a time to inspect them. And they should kill them and eat them at twilight. Take the blood, put it on the doorposts, roast it with fire, and not boil it, not eat it raw, 
and not leave any of it until, new, until morning. If they couldn't eat it all, they were to burn it up, everything, from the ears down to the tail. And they were to eat the meat that night together. And they were to eat it fully dressed, packed, and ready to go. With their belt on, which means they're ready to go, and their staff in hand, their sandals on, ready to go. Now, what does all this mean? God says he'd pass through the land and strike the firstborn and execute judgment on the gods of Israel. And this memorial was to be kept throughout all generations. This is a rehearsal for what is to come that we began to talk about with Jesus. It's a training. And again, God knows us and how dense we are to spiritual truths and reality. And so God has to work with us initially through our senses because we're so sense-oriented. That's what baptism is about. Baptism is to get in your physical senses and awareness of what happened to you spiritually. That you were an old creature when you came to Christ. And you died with Him. You, and then you were buried with Him in the water so that you could be raised again with Him. And to be put down in water and brought back up gets in your senses that you have been immersed in or buried into something and brought back out of it. In the same way, this meal was to ingrain in their senses every year something about what was to happen to them and the significance of what did happen to them. We didn't take that time to read it, but if you read on in chapter 12, it says, and when you do this, your children at some point will come and ask you what this means, and then they're ready to understand it. Our educational system does it backwards. We teach them something whether they want to know it or not. But in God's system, they made you memorize things until you got curious enough to ask, what does this mean? And then you were ready to have the understanding of what it means before when you already knew the facts. What does this represent? Well, it represents their deliverance from Egypt, which Egypt to us represents the world. All of us were born into this world, to this world's system, this world's values, and it is ingrained in us until we come to Christ. Once we come to Christ, we go through a process of renewing our mind, Romans 12 so that we're transformed and changed into the image of Christ. We're changed from being an Egyptian to being a child, a covenant child of God. Once you come to Christ, you already are a child of God, but the working of that out into your life is the process. The Lamb obviously represents Christ. The ba- John the Baptist said when he first saw him, Behold the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He was unblemished. A lamb is chosen because a lamb is innocent. A lamb is innocent. It just, you know... And now they're picking a lamb that's unblemished. And that, of course, represents Christ, that when He came to the point of, of being executed, that it was determined... In fact, it's interesting. I want to give you some scriptures. School of Ministry students may remember this. Without blemish, Christ was judged at the end of his life to be without blemish. He was judged, first of all, by his Father in Matthew 17, 15, where he says, 
this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This was when he came down off the Mount of Transfiguration. So the father said, I'm pleased with him. Jesus, after he's arrested, stands before Pilate. And Pilate says in Luke 23, 4, I find no fault in the man. What did Pilate represent? He was the governmental authority in that day. So Christ was examined. He lived his life before the world in publicly in ministry for about three and a half years. He was judged by God as without blemish. The legal authority in that city looks at him and examines him and says, I find no fault in him. You ready for this one? But God does things completely. Go over with me to, uh, to John 11. Jesus has been performing miracles and it's causing a problem for the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they have a council. They have a council meeting to decide what they're going to do with him. Let's look in verse 49. And they said, well, if, you know, what are we going to do with him? Because he's popular. In verse 49, after they're all debating it, one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, you guys don't know anything at all. You're debating what to do. Don't you understand something? Verse 50, or nor do you consider that it's expedient for us, it's t- t- good for us, that one man should die for the people so that the whole nation would not have to perish? Here you have the spiritual head of Israel, the high priest, looking at the Messiah, saying, don't you understand? He didn't understand what he was doing. But he was being used by God to declare that this lamb was a fit offering to sacrifice for the nation. He says, don't you understand? It's better to sacrifice this one man so that the entire nation could be saved. He had no clue what he was saying. And we wonder whether God's in charge. We wonder whether God can get us where we need to go. God used this rebellious, proud, ignorant, spiritually ignorant high priest to prophesy as high priest over the sacrifice that was about to be made for the nation. Wow. Wow. Had to be roasted. When you roast things, I ask myself, why wasn't it boiled? Because boiling is the heat heats the water, which heats the meat. But roasting, the meat's cooked by direct fire. There's nothing in between. And that fire of roasting represents the heat and the, the fire, the intensity of the judgment that was to come upon him on the cross. The Bible says his face was so contorted that he didn't look as if he were a man. Bearing the agony, not just the agony of the physical beating that the Roman soldiers took him through, but then the agony of bearing the sin of the world upon himself. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, see again he was without blemish, became sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He 
took sin itself upon him, and then sin has to be judged. Just as it was with the Egyptians' firstborn, God has now presented his firstborn to pour out the wrath and the anger and the judgment of God on the not just your sin and my sin, the sin of the world. Not only that, for the first time in his entire existence, because he's now got sin, he's separated from the presence of God. Cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the fire of roasting that perfect lamb represents the intensity of the judgment of the fire of God upon his firstborn son. And they had to consume all of it. They had to burn all of it so that there was nothing left over. So there was no, because if something was left over, that might be you or me. If it wasn't all consumed, then it wouldn't accomplish the full task of paying the full price. He bore our sins and iniquities on the cross. The chastisement for our peace, that's our soul, was upon him. And by his stripes, we're physically healed. He paid for our redemption, spirit, soul, and body. There was not one thing left out that was necessary to make you whole or to make me whole. You had to burn or consume all of that lamb. The bitter herbs represent the bitterness of their bondage because the bitter herbs made it taste bitter. It represented the bitterness of their bondage in Egypt so that they would remember what it was like when they left. The leaven represents sin. It's interesting because leaven is a, is a yeast. Leaven, and what does yeast do? Yeast takes the dough and causes it to get puffed up. It doesn't add any substance to it. It doesn't add any nutrition to it. It just makes what was small look bigger than it really is. And isn't that what sin does? Especially the sin of pride. It's when we get... We inflate ourselves so that we look bigger. We look better. We look stronger. We look more spiritual than we really are on the inside. And the wonderful thing about something that's puffed up is all it takes something is sharp to go poof and all the hot air comes out. So sin represents, or leaven represents sin, which is why in, under the Passover meal they had to get all of it out of the house because if there was any leaven, any sin left, when that judgment came, it would be judged for it. Aren't you and I glad we live under grace? But it shows 
the, 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 the destructiveness of the, even the slightest little bit of leaven of sin in God's economy, if I kept any of it, held on to any of it, I was removed from the fellowship. That doesn't mean just I can't come to church. I was removed from the covenant with God. Cut out, it said. Not asked to step outside. Cut out. The leaven represented sin. And they had to get it out of their house. The blood, of course, was the price for their sin. The principle said in Hebrews 9.14, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Why? Because Leviticus 17 tells us that the life is in the blood. Blood in the Bible represents life. So when we sing about the blood of Jesus, the power of the blood of Jesus, it's not His physical blood, it's the life of Jesus that was given up for us. And the reason without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin is because the wages of sin is what? The giving up of a life. And so in order for the sin to be paid for, in order for the penalty to be paid for, it requires the giving up of life. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And this is why when the angel came to the doorpost and saw blood of a lamb a perfect lamb, an unblemished lamb that met all the requirements that had been sacrificed and they saw that blood, they said, ah, the price has been paid in this household. I can pass over and go to the next. Now let's go back to Luke 22. There's a lot more we could talk about. And again, they did this over and over again, year after year after year after year after year, for every generation from the time they left Egypt until now. We left off in verse 18 where Jesus said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so now they're going to partake of this last meal together. And he took the bread and he gave it and broke it. And I'm sure they did not understand what he was doing yet. And he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body. They knew what that bread represented. They knew that that bread represented, that represented the lamb. That represented the life. He said, this is my body. This is now my body. In other words, I'm the fulfillment I'm the fulfillment of what you've rehearsed your whole life. And what I'm about to do is a fulfillment. Remember we talked about the hors d'oeuvres and the meal? What I'm about to do is the fulfillment, is the meal, is the essence, is the substance to what you've been rehearsing all your life. And Israel's been rehearsing ever since they were delivered from Egypt. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me of what I'm about to do for you. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant. New signifies that the old is over and that something is replacing it. You can see that clearly spelled out in Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10 and some of it chapter 8. 
And then he goes on to say, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. What he was about to do, he was declaring, was the fulfillment of what was represented in Israel's Israel's Passover. What this meant now is just as Israel would not be touched by the judgment of death for the sin of Egypt, now because of what he was about to do, they would not be judged with death for what they had done because he was about to shed his blood in their place. And although we would not smear blood on our forehead so that judgment would see that blood, God had a different way of sealing us. The Holy Spirit is called, Ephesians 1.13, it says, for when you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. See, in the spirit world, if you can see in the spirit, you're marked. You're marked. If we had a lineup this morning of Christians and non-Christians, we ought to be able to tell by the look on us to separate one from the other. But, but, but spiritually, it's very clear who's alive unto God and who's not alive unto God. And the Spirit of God, that presence in you is a sign, is a signal that it is the, it is the mark of the Lamb. All right, let's go on. In the Old Testament, it meant they would not be touched, but touched by the judgment of death coming on Egypt. An innocent lamb had shed his blood, undeserved. He shed his blood so that they could be free. It was the preparation for what Jesus was about to do. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Let's look at what he did for us and why we have something wonderful to remember and be thankful for this morning. Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, and he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him, that through death he might destroy him, who had the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus took on flesh and blood. He became the Lamb of God. That He might destroy Him. That He might destroy Him. That through His death, He might destroy Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus came to destroy the power of that Satan had, that Adam gave him when he sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned, we've talked about this before, Adam gave to Satan the authority that he'd been given by God over the earth. And from that point on, Satan is referred to as the God of this earth. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and in many other places. He had the power over all of mankind. Why? Because they were all guilty of sin 
and by having been guilty of sin, they were in his hands. And so he had the power of life and death. He had the power to hold on to us because we were guilty. And when you submit... Romans 6 says, verse 16, says, To whom you yield yourself, you make them your God. When we yielded ourselves to sin the first time, we made him our God. We gave him authority over our lives, so that even if we wanted to be free, we couldn't be free. Why? Because the guilt of our sin empowered him to hold us. Now, some of you didn't want to be freed your sin, but many of us did. We just couldn't get there. We tried to be better. We tried to improve our lives. We tried. We worked hard on this. We worked hard on that. And the harder we tried, the worse it got. The more we tried to be better, the more we were aware of how far we were falling short. The more guilty we felt. The more guilty we felt. The more powerless we were. problem is many Christians still feel the same way because they don't really understand what Christ did for them on the cross. To destroy him who had the power of death, Satan. And look at this. Look at the next verse. And release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. To release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to the bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he may be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, that means payment, Passover, settlement for, the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 55. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades or hell, where is your victory? He's talking about the resurrection from the dead here. The sting of death, the pain of death, the sting of death that we're afraid of is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. What held us into sin was the legal requirements of the law that if you ever sin once, you're guilty. If you ever sin once, you're guilty. We can't do that. When I've shared my testimony with you, I thought I was good enough until I read the law, God's standards, be perfect as I am perfect, and I knew I was in deep trouble. Because as good as I thought I was, I was infinitely far away from being perfect. And if I thought I was perfect, I just blew it. 
So the power of Satan over our lives, the power of fear is the fear of death because when death comes, we're going to face the judgment for what we've done. So we're afraid to die because we don't want to stand in judgment because somehow instinctively we know we don't measure up. And so that held us in bondage of fear, and fear allowed him to control our lives. But that verse says, but he's delivered us. He has delivered us. Now we get to heaven. He has delivered us from the bondage of fear. Why? Because he, because the, 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 the hold on our lives was the, the sting, the hold of sin, the power of sin, was you had to measure up to the whole law, and since we can't, the sin is what held us in its power. Go with me to Romans chapter 8, and we'll end with this. Now, Romans 7 sets it up. Because Romans 7, starting around verse 14, describes the Apostle Paul's struggle with sin in his life after he was saved. It says, the very things I want to do, I don't do. The very things I don't want to do, I do. Anybody identify with that? And the harder I try to not do it, the more I do it. And the harder I try to do it, what's right, the more I don't do it, He says, I've come to the conclusion that in my flesh is no good. In my flesh is sin. Because your flesh didn't get saved when you got saved. And what he's talking in there is he says, I don't have any, seem to have any power. I want to do what's right. I want to please God. I want to be obedient. But I don't seem to have any power to overcome this flesh. And he ends by saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And Romans chapter 8 is God's answer to that. Most Christians are still stuck in chapter 7. Oh, what wretched man that I am. Oh, I'm a piece of junk. Oh, I can't do this right. I can't do this right. Oh, which robs us of our confidence before God because we don't understand what Christ did. Oh, we know in our head... Romans chapter 8 is our emancipation proclamation. We've been set free from the power of sin. It doesn't mean you're sinless and won't ever sin, but it doesn't have power over you. Romans 6 says, sin no longer has power over you. And the reason we have trouble believing that is we see how hard it is to overcome it because we're trying to overcome it in our own strength. And the whole purpose of the Passover meal was to train them and educate them for the deliverance and remind them that God delivered them from the world. He delivered them from the power of Pharaoh. He delivered them from his hold. He delivered them and set them free and brought them into a land of promise. But we're Christians living in the wilderness at very best, sometimes looking back to Egypt. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore, now, say now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. For the law of the the Spirit of life 
in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, the law that you're now under is the law of the Spirit who brings life. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. The bondage that if I make a mistake, if I stumble, if I get the wrong motive in something, I'm dead. I've been freed from that bondage. If you, if I were to say, I'm going to teach you how to rake, walk a tightrope. So what we're going to do is we're going to go out in the parking lot, over on the other end of the parking lot. I've set up, had them set up two poles. They're each 50 feet high, and there's a wire between them. And I'm going to teach you how to walk a tightrope. No net, because you need the incentive to do it right. And you're going to go from this pole about 30 feet to that pole. You get up high, you're going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold on to that. I'm not going to venture out on there. Why? I can't learn how to relax on a wire if one wrong move is death. And that's what the law was like. That's what the law was like. So what God did is He, he, he put a net under it. He didn't lower the rope. He put a net under it. He didn't lower his standards. He put a net under it. And you know when they train them, they have a belt on them that's suspended so that if they slip, they don't fall far. They may slip and fall so they know they're not on the rope anymore, but it boom, bangs them back up again so they can get back on because then they can learn how to get their balance and walk it eventually with very little help. But the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Because what the law could not do because of the weakness of my flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh, He condemned my sin in His flesh. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be satisfied to me who walks not by trusting in my flesh, but by trusting in the work of the Spirit. Wow. 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 And why can we celebrate that freedom? Why can we step out into that freedom? Because the Lamb of God the firstborn took your place and my place on that cross. And on that cross, he took the full brunt and fire and anger and judgment, the full anger and judgment for every sin you've ever committed and every sin I'll ever commit. And he poured it out on his firstborn son on that cross so that he might then legally forgive you and me, so that he might then cleanse us and give us his own son's righteousness, so that he could now legally enter into us with his Holy Spirit, because now we are holy vessels fit for the Master's Spirit to come and dwell inside of us.
Jesus said to his disciples, this, this Passover, I've longed and looked forward to. And I don't believe it was just through his 33 years. I believe it's back through all of eternity because the Bible says he was slain before the foundation. In God's heart and mind, this was done. All of eternity, I've looked forward to this meal because what this meal signifies is everything that's been done up until now was an hors d'oeuvre. And what we're about to do now is going to set you free to be able to love me and worship me and come boldly into my Father's presence because not only will I have done this for you, but I will now be your high priest. And I can understand what your struggles are like because I had to resist sin myself. I was tempted in all ways as your way, but I didn't sin. Therefore, I can represent you before God the Father and wherever you've been weak, I can stand in your place and intercede for you and make up that difference. See, intercession doesn't just mean prayer. It means he stands in your place. So wherever you come to God and there's a defect or there's a weakness, he makes up that weakness because he ever lives to make up that place for you next to the Father so you can come with boldness and confidence. And it's all because of what we're about to remember right now. Let's pray. You are an awesome God. Our minds can hardly begin to get wrapped around what you've done for us, but somewhere in our spirit, somewhere inside of us, there's yes, somewhere inside of us, there's yes, 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 I want that. Yes, yes, that's what you've done. Yes, yes, I want to walk in that. I want to enjoy that. Help us this morning, Father, by your Spirit to not just hear it and receive it, but to embrace this freedom and to walk in this freedom for which you paid so dearly. Father, we're now about to partake of those same emblems that Jesus did those years and years ago, centuries ago. And as we do, help us for it to have the same meaning to us that it had to him back then. For that grace, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.